This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now you need to forward and get me out of work, 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 work. It's me up in work, 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 work. It's me down my Pim, isn't, wasn't this song made for the employment report, Pim? Uh, I hope so, um, but it just dates me. That's all I can say. Let me tell you about the jobs report. Come on, man. Oh, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> U.S. wage gains, they are stuck in the slow lane. Uh, 2.5% increase in November. Uh, that's from a year earlier. That was less than projected. Here to help us understand what's going on in the labor market is the former Deputy Secretary of Labor, Chris Liu, and he joins us from our Seattle Bureau today. Chris Liu, thanks very much for being here. Um, let's, I understand, you know, 4.1%, there are jobs aplenty, it seems, but uh, wage gains, why are wage gains only averaging about 2.5%? Well, you know, this is the $100,000 question. I mean, it, it is vexing that with 4.1% unemployment, the wages just have not come up. And, you know, there are a bunch of explanations. I mean, um, obviously, things like the minimum wage haven't gone up since 2009. Uh, we've got 6.1 million open jobs. Uh, many people talk about a skills gap uh, between the jobs that employers uh, are looking for and those that job seekers have. There's probably a longer-term uh, change in the demographic of the workforce as well that's in part based on the older uh, workers' uh, um, um, uh, leaving the workforce as well as um, uh, artificial intelligence automation. But it, there's not one reason, but it is one of the really big concerning things coming out of all of these job reports. Is there something fundamental that's changed in the labor force? You, you, know, you mentioned uh, unemployment, of course, which helps at a certain level. But is there something else that's changed in the, in the world of employment or the way people are employed? Well, I mean, I think it's a couple things. I mean, we are moving to more to a gig economy. Um, we obviously have more people now in school than there were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and labor force participation was much higher. Uh, we have workers leaving the workforce earlier. So uh, there, there's clearly slack in the economy for a variety of reasons. Um, and there's clearly jobs out there, good-paying jobs, that people aren't um, aren't able to compete for. And so, um, you know, uh, so there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, there's not an easy solution, and I will tell you that I don't believe the tax bill will have much of any impact on wage growth. Chris, you know, I just want to step back for a second and, and throw a number at you and see, get your thoughts about this. 22.4 million workers. They work either for the local government, state government, or the federal government. Let's say 22.5 million people. Is that too many people to be working for government? Because that means that those jobs are not in the private sector, correct? Well, I, you know, I think, look, I mean, I, I know more about the, the federal government. The size of the federal government now is... Um, about 2.8 million. Right. It, it's less than what it was 20, 30 years ago, even though the federal government has become um, has become bigger in part because the world has become a much more complex place. We didn't have a Department of Homeland Security uh, 20, 30 years ago. I don't know if it's the right number, um, but clearly uh, state and local government as well as federal employment has basically kind of leveled off, off over the last couple of years, really, since before the Great Recession. We really haven't been adding jobs on that front. So um, whether it's the right size or not, um, it, that sector has not been growing much at all. 
Uh, interesting in this report, too, that we do see, continue to see these gains. At what point do we start giving the current administration credit and, 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 and let you guys uh, take a final bow for what you did in the last administration? <laughs> well, look, I, look I, it, I will say this, that this recovery was started back in early 2010. I think presidents often get too much blame when it goes bad, and I think they get too much credit when it goes up. I think there were sensible policy actions that were taken during the last administration. And, you know, look, the jury's out on what happens on, 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 on the tax reform bill. If that, if that actually has a uh, marked impact on both job creation and wages, I think this president uh, rightly deserves credit. Uh, I haven't really seen much over the last 11 months in terms of his actions uh, that have had that impact, but we'll wait and see. What about manufacturing jobs? Uh, what's your take on the ability of the economy to generate more of those kinds of uh, employment opportunities? Well, you know, the numbers in this month were good, up 31,000. I'd also say construction was up 23,000. Those are both really good numbers as well. Um, you know, obviously, I think that there's an area where the tax bill can, if it is effective in bringing money off the sidelines or from overseas um, into investments, I think that could have a powerful impact. I think if I could have done this whole thing all over again, I would have asked the president to focus on infrastructure first instead of health care or taxes, because I think if we had taken the trillion and a half that we're spending right now on the tax cuts into an infrastructure bill, I think that would have a much more powerful stimulative impact on not only manufacturing, construction, all kinds of jobs across the board. Are there risks uh, in, in this tax bill about what effect it might have on employment? Well, I think it's right. It's not just me saying that. Most economists will tell you that. I think they're very skeptical about the amount of economic growth that will come out of this. Um, you, you know, and, and in part, it's because of the way that the tax bill has been structured. It's really not aimed at providing much relief to middle-income uh, consumers. Uh, and then when you layer on top of that the changes that it's making to the Affordable Care Act that could endanger the health care of 13 million people, that becomes a problem as well, because it's not just your wages, but it, it's going to be what your health care expenses are going to look like as well. Chris, you mentioned this idea of infrastructure first before a tax overhaul. If you look back on your time in the Obama administration, uh, would that also be your recipe for success? Well, and it, it's what we, you know, out of the box, three weeks after Inauguration Day 2009, we passed an $800 billion um, stimulus package. About a third of that was used for not only infrastructure projects, clean energy, um, transportation. Uh, we would have wanted to spend more on that, but in order to get it done, we needed to put a certain amount of money in there for tax cuts as well. You know, and economists that have looked at that 2009 stimulus have basically credited it with about two and a half to three million jobs um, saved or created. And I think that's, we know that's a proven way uh, not only to create jobs, but frankly, businesses need to move their products around this country much faster. And uh, fixing up roads and bridges does that. Well, uh, uh, certainly we're going to see what, what happens here if we do get any kind of inf infrastructure spending. It's been a long promise and, and not delivered, uh, so we'll see if that actually shows up. Chris Liu, always glad to have you. Chris Liu is the former Deputy Secretary of Labor uh, on the, under the Obama administration. We always appreciate your analysis of these jobs numbers. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Bloomberg Radio. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Well, shares of Autodesk fell about 16% last week after a confusing earnings report and guidance. So we reached out to the CEO, Andrew Anagnost, and asked him what he had to say about it. I think Autos is such an interesting company, uh, both in what the products do and the ways that you sell it, but also in the way now that you're changing the business. Uh, first of all, can you describe the markets that are most important to Autodesk right now? 
Yeah, so you know, there, there's several markets that are core to us. Obviously, the architecture engineering market. Which it, has been the history of all of that. That's the history. We're also a big player in the product design and manufacturing space. What's becoming a super important emerging market is construction. You know, we've always been big in the A and E in AEC. Right. We're becoming very big in the C in AEC because that whole industry is digitizing. Well, and, it, and it's also interesting that, that in the procurement, you see uh, a, a lot of municipalities figuring out that if you work in procurement and design into the actual design process, you end up with a lot faster and a lot cheaper projects. Yeah, well, it, it's even, actually, Corey, it's even more, more, more than that. What's happening in construction is it's industrializing. Construction processes are starting to look a lot more like manufacturing processes. And you know how digital manufacturing processes are. Yeah. Construction's got to be exactly the same. So you guys are in the midst of this. You announced these big changes in the business, particularly the move from maintenance uh, to subscription yep. and, and how that's maybe a little bumpier than you would have thought. Uh, stock took a big hit last week, though in, in context, of about two years, you're still about 72% for a two-year stretch, which is a pretty good run. Yeah, it's a great run. And, you know, Corey, we, we announced great results because we, we hit our goals. We, we exceeded a few. 5% sales growth year over year? 25% recurring revenue growth. We're returned to revenue growth. So remember, we, we were you know, going through the dip, so we were right. negative for a while. Now we've returned to revenue growth. We, we did exactly what we were said we were going to do. I just think people expected us to maybe do a little well, bit more. Why would a customer switch from maintenance to a subscription-based uh, uh, fee for your service as opposed to just abandon it and go somewhere else? Most of our customers are seeing companies like Salesforce, Workday. They got Office 360. The way they buy software now is subscription subscription-based. It's kind of just the expectation. They like it. They can turn it on, turn it off when they need it. Most customers are saying, yeah, this is the way the software industry is going. So there's really not a lot of resistance, maybe from the smallest customers in our base, but not from the bigger ones. So I talked to a lot of people uh, getting ready to talk to you today about sort of what was going on and what they thought of the call last week and what the information was. And one of the, I kept hearing questions about the timing of the restructuring. Yeah. Why do the restructuring now? And what does it have to do with your long-term 2020 free cash flow goals? Yeah, it was interesting con- conspiracy theory. That were being there were a lot out there. Well, yeah, yeah. well you know, it's... Uh, it's and, I'm, and I'm a collector of conspiracy theories. I'm a big fan. Yeah, and, and that, that was, there was a lot of ones around that. So, you know, one of the things, you know, you know, there's that famous John F. Kennedy quote, right? The best time to fix your roof is when the sun is shining. Right. That's exactly what we've been doing. We've been planning this for a while. We knew we needed to invest, invest more strategically in digitizing the company, and in particular in construction. The money just wasn't in the places we needed it. So this is something we planned. We're going to invest every penny back in the company over the next 6 to 12 months. So this, this isn't a reduction in our OPEX envelope. It's just a reshuffling of where we're spending the money. So what does that mean for headcount? Is headcount going to end up the same here? Headcount-wise, we'll be as big a company a year from now as we, we were before the restructure. Where do those resources have to be? Where were they maybe in the wrong place, and where are they going to be now? Well, what we did is we had a bunch of initiatives that weren't core to what we were trying to do. You know, driving the subscription transition, digitizing the company, becoming a super modern digital company, reimagining construction and manufacturing. We had projects that just weren't aligned with that. So we, we essentially took out entire projects and we're shifting the money over to those things that are important. I think the other thing that, that I heard back a lot was that uh, there's a concern over the subscription number, just how many uh, customers are, are joining the subscription service. Talk to me about uh, you know, what, what, the, what the story is there, what you expect it to be. You know, I now. think that was the biggest piece of turbulence from last right. week because we delivered a solid result on the core, which is sure. really what matters. You can't deliver the rec- recurring revenue growth without the core strength. But, when, when, but when, we took when, the cloud number down. When analysts are modeling the stuff out, though, you get down 
to a unit number, yep. and you get down to a revenue per subscriber, maintenance per subscriber. And so when those numbers come down, particularly when you're switching to a recurring revenue uh, model, that starts to matter a lot more. Yeah, but see, the re- that's, that, that's here's the exciting thing, though. The revenue per subscriber on the subscriptions that matter is up 20% year over year. So what they got spooked by, and it's natural because, you know, it's a complex transition. People wonder, hey, what's sure. going on under the covers? We just said we're going to do fewer cloud subscriptions, and those cloud subscriptions aren't important to our two-year goals. Why? That's what spooked them. Because they're small relative to the core, so the cloud's growing small fast. Number or small number small in terms of revenue, revenue per customer? Small revenue number. Small revenue number. Small revenue per customer, too. But they're going to be bigger three, four, five years out. They're just small relative to the two-year goals that everybody's paying attention now, to. Now, what does it mean for sort of product development, innovation, and the kinds of things you want to innovate around? What it means is we're going to be investing a lot in reimagining how people do construction and manufacturing processes. You know, you know, you probably know this. Construction is the lowest invested in IT right next to agriculture in the U.S. I think in Europe it's actually below agriculture. This industry needs to be transformed, and it's investing crazy in digital technologies now. So when you look forward, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be helping our construction customers become manufacturers of buildings. Everyone watching this right now or listening to this right now is can look out in the major cities in this country. I, was, I ran down by one of cranes. cranes everywhere. Yeah. The, the new Warriors facility, I counted nine cranes down there this morning. There's cranes all over downtown San did, Francisco. Did you know that on average, uh, 30 to 40 percent of what you see on that site is wasted? Interesting. Well, uh, a great opportunity yeah. for you. Of course, was the CEO of Autodesk. Uh, interesting stuff, Pim, uh, from Andrew Anagnost. Uh, when he talked about AEC, that's architecture, engineering, and construction, the focus of this big software company. No more, no less. You don't have to guess. When it's three, you can see it's a magic number. 3D Systems knows all about magic. Uh, the magic of 3D printing is something 3D Systems has been involved with for a long time. Uh, new CEO, Vijay Yoshi, joins us right now, uh, formerly of Hewlett Packard. When you and I used to know each other years ago, and I covered HP so much. Uh, and I'm curious about you know, this this company that has been at the forefront of digital 3D printing for a long time, but has had a lot of struggles. Um, uh, you, talk to me about what is the what's the biggest difference between the business model of Hewlett Packard's printing business, which is a behemoth, to uh, th- the business model of 3D printing? Oh, I think the 3D printing is all about materials. Just like the in HP, you know, we had ink. Well, ink was, and paper was I, I right. as I was often regularly criticizing <laughs> Absolutely. HP. Was the, the the real profits of HP weren't in modern technologies and fantastic things. It was selling ink and paper. Yeah, I think the same thing. You know, really in my mind, the innovation is about the materials, because if you can get the materials such a way, the properties that you could create production parts, that's where the opportunity. Rapid prototyping, not just modeling. Yeah, not just rapid prototyping, but actually making an end user production part. So that means not just the form and fit, but right. functionality. Interesting. Vijay, maybe just comment a little bit about the competition that exists in the industry, because Stratasys is a competitor. And I wonder if that could really hurt your margins or whether it has hurt your margins and whether there is any real guidance that you can offer investors, because, boy, they really were hit pretty hard uh, earlier in uh, November when the stock took a real tumble down from uh, $11 a share to uh, under $10 a share. Well, I think, you know, what I when I joined the company, I really looked at, you know, what are the core things I need to do. The first thing was really turning around the company and focusing on core portfolio, which will allow me to really get this technology into production. And um, when you do that, you know, when you really focus 
you know, you also need to make sure that you delight the customers. And I think that's what we were doing by investing more on quality and reliability because our legacy products had quality and reliability issues. And I think those things impacted our margin. But long term, my view is materials is where the margins are. And now we have a core technology that we just introduced that we will go into the production. I think that 2018 will be a very good year for us. Yeah, well, uh, for when I first came to Bloomberg, probably about seven years ago, we had uh, uh, the former management of, of 3D Systems come in here, and they had a machine, and I said, well, print something for us. Well, how long will it take? It'll take about half an hour. Perfect. We'll start printing at the beginning of the show, and it should be done halfway through our hour-long show. We actually had them start before the show, and it went a whole hour and a half and still couldn't get completed, and the piece that was printed was pretty ugly. It didn't, work, didn't look like it was supposed to look. It was a sort of a real-time display of what, what, was po- what wasn't possible, even though it was promised. Uh, talk to me about what you did to try to fix those issues. Yeah, I think <clears throat> the key thing that I worked on is saying, okay, what are the core technologies which can really create that end-user part that I'm talking about? And not only that, but it can print faster, you know, yeah. because um, if you want to be in production, you know, you need to be able to um, print million parts a year, not just, uh, you know, a few hundred. And I think the technology that we have in, in introduced now, just last month, we can print million parts a year of plastics. Now, what, now one of the goals, it seemed to be at least the Holy Grail, was going to be a cheap desktop 3D printer. Um, some of the Stratasys products were on the completely other end. There were th- printers the size of a refrigerator or bigger right. that were that were uh, uh, more industrial. Where do you think the sweet spot in the market is? So I think I think I don't think that the consumer market is big enough because my view is people buy that for hobby and they will never use any materials. My focus is more B two B or the enterprise, and there it's not about the um, size of the product. It's about can you create functional parts and can you make them, you know, at a speed that I'm talking about so that you could do million parts a year. And the total cost of operation, because my long-term vision is that if you are developing a product, you don't need to create any tooling. You could actually create the part which can go from pilot run to all the way to the production. BJ, maybe just give an example. I know that you do a lot of work in the automotive and the aerospace industry. You use uh, metal, powdered metal, in order to pr- print some of these products. Can you give us an example of uh, maybe even the, the, I know that you did some work for a race car, Mitsubishi race car. Uh, how did it work out and, and how does that end up being a high volume business? Well, I think automotive will not be a high volume business initially because the part size and the volume there are way more than million parts. I think I want to give an example in healthcare, like dentistry. You know, if you think about, um, you know, 7 billion people, 32 teeth, that's, you know, 210 billion custom parts. <laughs> so my focus is initially... Assuming you know, they're all uh, not brushing and their teeth that's are falling right. out. But yeah. yeah, so, you know, so we have, we bought a company called Nextent, you know, after I arrived at 3D Systems, they make uh, dentistry materials. And with those materials, they've been in this business for 40 years, but now they can print on 3D printer. So my focus is now, let's invest into dentistry for dental labs, you know, so which can do dentures, which can do crowns and bridges. And I think that's where very big opportunity is to do custom parts rather than automotive. Automotive is still more prototyping. So in the production point of view, I would say that I want to start out 
with the dentistry, then service bureaus, you know, because they are all in the production. And we are also working with some of the uh, Fortune 50 companies where they are looking at million parts where you don't need any molding. And finally, just a really quick, about 30 seconds here, what kind of price points on the machines are we talking about here? So we have now introduced a machine all the way from $5,000 to $2 million. $1 million, interesting. But what's the sweet spot? So sweet spot will be probably $100,000. Interesting stuff. Uh, well, it's a fascinating field, and it's uh, it's all over the place, Pim. Uh, it's it, it's creeping up in all kinds of places because the production costs are conceivable for almost any kind of business. I was going to say, stuff. you know, the holidays are coming up, Corey. Uh, that's right. You can fit one of these right underneath my Christmas tree. It'll work just fine. Look to the skies, you see drones more and more these days. George Matthew joins us right now, the CEO of a company called Kespri. Uh, yet another drone startup, uh, and George, glad to have you here uh, in our AM960 studios out over the San Francisco Bay. Um, uh, talk to me about what you guys are trying to do in, in, in the field of drones. Yeah, Corey, thanks for having me on air. We've been focused at Kespri on industrial work, being able to deliver drones that autonomously fly on work sites like construction locations, mining locations, over rooftops, be able to do accurate measurement of volumetrics, the dimensionality of a roof, the level of damage and extent, being able to measure stockpiles, and be able to produce accurate results for how decisions are made inside these industrial work sites. George, uh, one of the things I noted is that you've raised uh, an additional $33 million in a Series C financing that adds, uh, I think it's over $61 uh, million in uh, three rounds. And I thought it was interesting that one of the strategic investors is Shell Technology Ventures. Tell us about why would Shell or even ABB Ventures, would they be looking perhaps, I mean, do they want to own you? Because you're trying to expand in, the, in oil and gas. Yeah, that's so when you think about the use cases that we've been focused from an industrial work standpoint, Pim, the natural extension for Casper is, of course, in the energy sector. There's enormous amounts of opportunity, not only in oil and gas, just but in renewables. And so when you think about the use of Casper to be able to do better asset management in the energy sector, there was a lot of interest for the work that we had been doing with Shell as a customer, they naturally invested in us. And of course, as you know, ABB is one of the world's largest industrial automation robotics companies, and they saw a natural fit with what Caspery was delivering as an autonomous solution into the market. When I think about technological innovation, I sometimes think that our first ima- that our imaginations tend to be limited about what kind of things are possible. I don't know that any of us, when we saw our first iPhones, could have imagined uh, that, that the greatest uses of the phones might be Uber or Instagram, right, uh, that we were trying to think of. We thought that might be used for, say, making phone calls or something. Um, I wonder, when you look in the drone industry, if you look at some of the things we talk about, uh, the industry's possible examining pipelines and stuff like that, is just scratching the surface if there are completely new uses that are, are starting to become apparent to you in your business. I think you're absolutely right. When you think about the iPhone, when it was introduced into the market now, what, 10 years ago, we certainly didn't see what the possibilities were for all kinds of business and consumer use cases. In the case of drones, of course, they were introduced into the market as a consumer product. And what we're seeing is the enormous impact on commercial use cases, specifically industrial work. We started in the mining aggregate space, Corey, where we literally took the ability to measure volumetrics of material on a mine site from forecast inaccuracies as much as 20% down to 1% forecast accuracy. So literally grew Casper's customer base in just that market alone from a few customers to over 120 within a few years. And so these 
disruptions that are ahead of us, particularly with the use of an aerial intelligence platform like Kespri's, an autonomous solution that's being able to get me- better measurement accuracy in place in terms of how you're making decisions is literally changing the future of industrial work. George, how do you secure the information that the drone that you use gathers? Uh, Not only that it gathers, but then transmits. Because I was looking at a a bulletin going back to August, the beginning of August, and DJI, which is a Chinese uh, drone maker, very popular uh, with uh, non-professional drone aficionados, and they said that that the information that DJI uh, was uh, collecting was likely uh, being uh, transmitted to the Chinese government and that you've got U.S. companies in infrastructure, law enforcement, they're using these drones right now. How do you prevent that information from getting out? Well, you have to have a mindset of a stronger enterprise secure solution when you start with these objectives in mind, particularly when you go into industrial commercial use cases. When Caspery started as a solution and market, we had the mindset that we're serving some of the largest industrial customers in the world. And so we built a secure analytical pipeline. We built a lot of data processing that was managed in a very secure infrastructure built around Amazon Web Services and, of course, exposed analytical applications that were meant for these enterprises. So our mindset was, first and foremost, use the sensors that are coming off the drone and securely generate the insights. And in that sense, we've now flown over 40,000 missions for our customers over the last three and a half years, and we've managed to grow our customers in a safe, secure fashion in terms of the consumption of that data coming off the Kespri cloud and the drones that we're delivering into Is market. that a concern you hear from your customers, or you just think it's best practice? I think that's the status quo that really needs to be in the market, Corey, when it comes to commercial and industrial work. You have to be able to have a secure infrastructure that supports all all the, the data pipelines, the analytics that are generated off for sensor-based data like drones. And to me, that is the new normal. Just quickly, George, uh, how much would it cost me if I wanted to buy Corey a, a drone for the holiday season? What's your, well, you what's know, your least cons- expensive? Well, the, the good news is in the consumer drone market, the prices of drones have actually fallen quite dramatically. Some of the best drones, including one of the hardware manufacturers you mentioned, DJI, produces a beautiful drone into the market uh, for about $1,000 or less. In the industrial workspaces, we're in the tens of thousands of dollars of a complete solution, including the analytical applications and the processing that's involved with our drones going to need a big uh, big tree to put that under. Thanks very much. Uh, George Matthew, he's the chief executive of the drone maker Kespri. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Big fish in a small pond. Not a fish trying to throw they book at the crook, but I shook. They worm and they hook. Oh, Charlie Pellet in charge of the playlist again. Look at him go. I wish, I wish all of our listeners could see Charlie Pellet right now dancing to the hip hop. Uh, but we're thinking, we're thinking whales here. Big fish indeed. When it comes to Bitcoin, Ogle Karif joins us right now, Bloomberg News Tech Reporter, with a look at some of the biggest holders of Bitcoin. What are we talking about here, Olga? So we are talking about uh, people who perhaps uh, mine Bitcoin, that is, uh, you know, plug their computers in to support Bitcoin in its early days. We're talking about uh, investors such as uh, Tim Draper, such as Roger Burr, who invested in Bitcoin while it was still trading at uh, a very low price and that now have really huge holdings. So, Olga, this idea is that 1,000 people own 40% of the Bitcoin market, right? Right. So how is that a real market? 
that's a very good question. And, you know, when you look at all digital currencies and all digital coins that are out there, not just Bitcoin, uh, I mean, you see the same kind of um, an equation all across the board. In fact, Bitcoin has the least concentrated ownership of all digital coins out there. So while a lot of investors are now interested in them, they, this is definitely something they should keep in mind. All right. So if this is a relatively small market in terms of participants, do we have any idea how much money or how much money it would take to actually move the market? Is it one trade at, let's say, 15000 for Bitcoin? How well, many trades point. does it take? That's a great point, Pim. That's a really good point, and this is uh, this has been a moving target, um, uh, and still remains a moving moving target as uh, sort of the ownership in this market changes uh, over time. But you know, I would say that uh, probably you know somebody with uh, you know uh, just a trade uh, involving sort of uh, a few million dollars can probably move the market. Uh, that's remarkable here. Now, of course, we, uh, come Monday, we're going to have some um, uh, other instruments uh, that can affect that market. Right, futures, do we have any of, futures, right? Do we have any notion of how those futures contracts might change that? So uh, one uh, reason why Bitcoin's value has increased so much on the news that uh, the futures uh, will become available is that today a lot of institutional investors, uh, for instance, they aren't allowed to invest directly in Bitcoin, but the future sort of gives them a way to uh, sort of uh, play in this market without sort of jeopardizing the conditions that they're operating under. So this essentially throws the door open uh, uh, to this market. Uh, Olga, do you know anyone that actually mines Bitcoin? Um, I do, but they are actually, at this point, just very, very large companies that have huge uh, huge server farms in places like Iceland. Uh, if you are an individual trying to mine with a computer, you're not going to make very much money. All right. So if you've got a big server farm in Iceland, I would imagine that that costs money to put together. you have any idea how much and whether that is really you know, where the money goes rather than into Bitcoin? So uh, it is a huge investment to set up a server a farm. But if you have scale, you can also make quite a bit of money. And uh, keep in mind that the server farms, they typically... Uh, can uh, and do, they uh, often change what kind of coins they mine. They they look for the most profitable coin at the moment. So today it could be Bitcoin, uh, tomorrow it could be Ether or another digital coin. They're very, very profitable. Uh, it's interesting, too, to, see, to watch them be able to switch from one to the next. Uh, it, it's my understanding that the power is the biggest concern there, that they've got to find... Um, you know, the, a place where they can get power cheaply enough that they can run the computers uh, and still make some money on it. Absolutely. That's why some of them are setting up in Iceland. Others uh, have moved to uh, Singapore and, you know, uh, Washington State is, is another place where uh, some um, of these farms are moving to. Uh, so they're all in search of kind of the lowest electricity cost. It sounds also that they're just interested in making lots of money. And, I mean, nothing wrong with that when you're talking about an investment. But uh, could, this could be a manipulated market. If you have one of these market participants, one of these 1,000 entities that decides that they want to go out and buy lots of Bitcoin, uh, 
they could do so and that would increase the price, correct? That's right. And, you know, also something that a lot of people who who are inside this market, uh, something that they talk about is that a lot of these large holders, um, they know each other, they've known each other for years, uh, they've known each other when Bitcoin was still, you know, an obscure sort of weird idea out there and that they had to defend to other people. And so uh, a lot of people believe that uh, some of these holders might be sort of bending together to make market moves. Um, and, and that could be exacerbated if there is uh, a lot more financial interest with the trading of futures. It would seem like it's going to put that even more uh, highly at risk. I agree. And is there any central uh, clearing that is going to be done? I know that Goldman Sachs said, for example, that they would be willing to clear those uh, futures that are going to be launched on uh, Sunday, I believe at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time, those uh, futures on Bitcoin on the SIBO. You know, um, at this point, I know there are a lot of people who say that we are not ready yet for (laughs) Bitcoin futures. Uh, Other people who say that uh, we are ready. But, but, you know, pretty much everybody says that this is, you know, risky business. It's a risky business to invest in Bitcoin and probably going to be a risky business to invest in Bitcoin futures. Well, a great story. Uh, Olga Karif, our technology and telecom reporter, joining us from Portland, Oregon. And you can follow Olga uh, on uh, Twitter at Olga Karif. That's uh, Olga and K-H-A-R-I-F. Thanks very much. Very interesting. The Bitcoin whales, 1,000 people who own 40% of the market. Incredible. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Corey Johnson. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's yes, take a indeed. look at the... Oh, go, right, ahead, go, go ahead, please. No, no. Oh. What a day in the markets. There's so much to jump in on. <laughs> S&P 500 up uh, 55 basis points, 0.55%. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 118 points in the day, also about a half of a percent. And we're looking at big gains for the year. The Nasdaq up 27% for the year. The S&P up 18% for the year. The Dow up 23% for the year. What a run. That's right. What a run. All right, let me tell you about one stock that made a run today, Alexion, up uh, more than 7% today. Alexion uh, Pharmaceuticals, this because of a report that uh, Elliott Management, the activist investors, is uh, perhaps going to push Alexion to uh, bring on new board members, improve margins, and consider a potential sale. This all according to a person familiar with the matter. Of course, uh, we know that Alexion Pharmaceuticals uh, is a rare disease drug maker, and uh, Elliott began amassing its stake in April and has already talked with uh, Alexion, said the person who asked not to be identified. New York-based investment firm wants, as I said, new board members and uh, wants people with more biotechnology experience. Well, there you go. Shares of uh, Alexion today moving higher by more than uh, $7 a share. That's an increase of more than 7%. 
In a market that I said was up about 0.6% of the day, uh, shares of Amazon up only 0.2%, shares of Atlas Air down about 0.2%. But the stories there are interesting. So two stories are related to Amazon. One is Amazon only. Uh, a guy named Brent Kennedy, former financial analyst at Amazon, was sentenced by a U.S. district court in Seattle to six months in prison and a $2,500 fine and two years of supervised release for securities fraud. He apparently got a hold of uh, results for the uh, first quarter of 2015 and then gave it to a friend who bought the stock and sold it a stock and sold it a profit once the results were out. Uh, but uh, the, the financial analyst at uh, Amazon, who is no longer at Amazon uh, and is going to do six months in prison. Uh, that was part of the news. The other interesting news out related to Atlas Air. So Atlas Air, uh, a, a company that suddenly sees its revenues are rapidly growing, or revenues of 20% in the last quarter, why they fly packages for Amazon. Uh, they've been subject to a series of uh, uh, efforts by Teamsters. Uh, the Teamsters and Local 1224 uh, appealing to the U.S. Court of Appeals and uh, the District of Columbia Circuit Court, according to legal filing, but they've been ordered by a federal judge to stop encouraging strikes, sickouts, and work slowdowns at Atlas Air Worldwide. Um, uh, Atlas Air hauls freight for Amazon and for the U.S. military, and so that uh, the pilot's actions were affecting their business, decided to uh, pressure the company during contract talks, of course, is a pretty important time in the business of shipping packages. Well, talking about airlines for just a second, uh, United Continental Holdings, uh, stock uh, really not moving much today, 63.55 on the close. But the report is that uh, United Continental is exploring a deal to invest in a regional airline, ExpressJet. It wants a uh, bigger pipeline of pilots and wants to expand service in the eastern and midwest of the United States. This according to people familiar with the matter. And they're looking at acquiring an ownership stake in ExpressJet, among other options. Uh, no guarantee the discussions are actually going to lead to a deal uh, with ExpressJet. It is an unprofitable subsidiary of SkyWest. They already fly for United. Once again, uh, United Continental exploring a deal to invest in ExpressJet. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson, what are you going to tell us about having to do with your stock of the day? I'm going to talk about Qterra, which is all about aesthetics, specifically face and body aesthetics. The company's products remove unwanted hair and tattoos, minimize veins and age spots, and reduce the appearance of cellulite, among other things. Qterra was found. Sign me up. Yeah, well, there you go. Absolutely. Too bad Carol's not here, but that's a whole nother matter. Qterra was founded in 1998 and went public in 2004. The ticker is C-U-T-R. The shares fell below their initial price in 2008 and languished until this year when they took off. Qterra has soared as much as 161% for the year. Most of the gain occurred during the past four months and was triggered by the release of second quarter results. Earnings and sales for that period were far above analyst average estimates in a Bloomberg survey. Qterra peaked at a record last month after putting out well-received results for the third quarter. Today, the rally gained some renewed momentum with the help of S&P Dow Jones Indices, which selected the company for the S&P small cap 600 index. Now, Qterra will join the index before next Friday's opening bell. It's going to replace an oil field services company, Tesco, uh, that's being bought by Neighbors Industries. And the change 
means funds attract the small cap 600 will have to buy shares. And that prospect lifted Qterra in today's trading by 9.7%. Well done. David Wilson. Yeah, well done. Qterra. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.